The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Title of my message for you today is, What Will I Do With Jesus? We're going to be looking at Pilate, who had to face this question, What Shall I Do With Jesus? But I've personalized it on purpose because I want each of us to wrestle with that question, what am I going to do with Jesus? And as I just mentioned, the central figure in our story today is this man named Pontius Pilate. And so let's begin by, by looking at Pilate the politician. He served as the governor of the region of Judea during the time of Jesus. And I should note that for a long time, skeptics doubted whether or not he was an actual historical figure. But then, not too long ago, in 1961, archaeologists were digging and excavating in the area of Caesarea, and they uncovered this stone, and on the stone they found writing in Latin that placed Pilate as the governor of the region of Judea during the reign of Tiberius, the emperor of Rome, which just confirms what the Bible said all along. Let's just chalk that up as one more win for the Bible and one more swing and a miss for the skeptics. It seems like every time archaeologists take a shovel and put it in the earth in Israel, they, they confirm another thing that we read about in the Bible. Don't doubt the Bible, okay, guys? It's, it's never uh, a good course of action. Well, anyways, the picture that history paints of this guy Pilate that we're going to be talking about is that of a shrewd and cunning politician. He received his post the old-fashioned way, and that is he happened to marry the emperor's daughter, and he caught her eye and won her favor, and so he was given this prestigious post. His main job there in Judea was to keep the peace in a region that was known for unrest. Now, by the time Jesus' trial happens, Pilate is already on thin ice with Rome for a few instances, one that had occurred a couple years prior to this trial. You see, one night while the city slept, Pilate had his soldiers go out throughout the city and erect all of these statues with the image of Caesar emblazoned on them. And when the Jewish people woke up the following morning, there was no small commotion because they saw these images as a violation of God's command not to have any graven images. And so they demanded that Pilate take down the shields, but of course he refused. And, and so with no other real recourse of action, what the Jewish people decided to do is, is they just decided to sit down. And they sat down there in the middle of the city and they refused to go home. They refused to go to work. They refused to eat or do anything until Pilate agreed to take down the shields. Well, Pilate just decided to wait them out. But one day turned into two, turned into three. And you can imagine everything in the city came to a grinding halt. And this wasn't going to look good for him if word made its way to Rome. And so by the seventh day, he rallied, gathered up all of the people and surrounded them with soldiers and threatened their lives unless they got back to work. And the response of the people was to stretch out their necks. They said, you're going to have to kill us. You see, Pilate had called their bluff and they hadn't flinched. And so finally he was forced to give in to their man demands and the shields 
were removed. But I share that story, that historical story, to, to give you a sense of the flavor of the relationship that existed at the time between the Jewish people and Pontius Pilate. There was no love lost between these two groups. Well, in our story, Pilate has been called upon by the religious community to render a verdict on Jesus of Nazareth. And that's where we pick things up, beginning in verse 28 of John 18. It says, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? Their response, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. All right, let, let me bring you up to speed here. Jesus, by this point, it's early in the morning. Jesus has already endured several trials. It was more of a kangaroo court. He was shuffled around from place to place. First, he stands trial before Annas, who is the acting high priest. Then he's dragged over to Caiaphas, where he's assaulted by one of the high priest's servants. And, and then finally, he's dragged before the Sanhedrin, which was the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. And it was there that he was sentenced to death for the sin of blasphemy. However, before the sentence can be carried out, the Jewish leaders want to get Rome's stamp of approval, so they drag Jesus before Pilate to get him to sign off on things. Now, notice how it says they didn't go into the palace because they wanted to remain ceremonially clean. A Jewish person couldn't go into the home or the, the palace of, of a, a Gentile without becoming unclean. And since it was one of the high holy days, they stayed outside. Now, what's ironic about that is these were the same men who had just dragged Jesus through a series of illegal trials after they had paid an illegal bribe to arrest Jesus on trumped up charges they knew weren't true. So they had no qualms or problems with breaking the law or violating any of one of those, those laws. And yet here, to remain ceremonially clean, they won't go into the house of a Gentile. And it just shows their hypocrisy, which is something that Jesus was constantly combating the religious leaders on. He was chiding them continuously for their hypocrisy. One example is Matthew 23, 27. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. <clears throat> so in Israel at that time, they would take you know, paint and they would wash the outside of tombs to, to beautify them, make them pretty on the outside. Jesus says, you guys are like those tombs, pretty on the outside, but full of death and decay on the inside. They, they hid behind a thin veneer of outward exposing religiosity, all of this deceit and all of this vile and uncleanness. And, and so they won't go in and Pilate begins the proceedings in verse 29 when he says, what charges are you bringing against this man? And that question represents the official start of the court case. Every court case in Rome began with a similar question, and that would be followed by an official reading of the charges against 
the accused. So that being the case, what were the charges that these religious leaders were bringing against Jesus? Well, we find them in verse 30. They just say, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. In other words, all they could come up with was, he deserves it. Just deal with him. Can you imagine how that would play out in a modern courtroom? The prosecuting attorney comes in and, and he presents his case and just says, judge, just throw the book at him. I don't really have much, but just do it because we said so. Obviously, at this point, Pilate knew that they'd only brought Jesus before him out of pure hatred and spite. So at this point, he wants to just dismiss the whole case. In verse 31, he says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. Now, this took place, note this, to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate says, just go take care of it yourselves. But the religious leaders push back. They say, no, no, this isn't just some criminal who, who was guilty of committing a petty crime like shoplifting or jaywalking or something like that. We want to enact the death penalty here. Now, the issue was that Rome had already stripped Israel of the right to carry out capital punishment. That's why they needed Pilate to sign off on his execution. But when he tells them to take care of the matter themselves, he's essentially giving them carte blanche permission. Go ahead. You can kill the guy. Do whatever you want. I'll turn a blind eye, which the Romans often did. This would have meant death by stoning, which was the biblical form of carrying out capital punishment. We see it in places like John chapter 8 and Acts chapter 7 and on a number of occasions when they wanted to stone Jesus. So here's the question. Why didn't the religious leaders, they've been given permission by Pilate, carry out the sentence, do what you think is right. Why didn't they just go out and stone Jesus? It would have been expedient. It would have been prudent. And yet John tells us why in verse 32 he said, Jesus had to be crucified, which was a Roman means of execution because that's how Jesus said he was going to die. Listen to this. A thousand years before Jesus was born and some 600 years before the Persians ever even invented death by crucifixion as a means of executing people, David, King David, all the way back in Psalm 22, predicted with precise detail the manner by which the Messiah would die. And if you go back and you read Psalm 22, what you'll find is 17 specific prophecies that outline this is how the Messiah is going to do, how the Messiah is going to die, including his hands and his feet will be pierced. Keep in mind, David wrote this a thousand years before Jesus has even been born. 600 years before the Persians have invented crucifixion. His hands and his feet will be pierced. They, he goes on to say, not one of his bones will be broken. They would, during crucifixion, break the bones of the criminals to expedite the process of suffering and death. But when they came to Jesus to break his legs, they saw that he had already died, so they didn't break his legs. It was a notable detail about the death of the Messiah. And so, too, David predicted that they would cast lots for his garments, which, of course, happened with Jesus. It's incredible, the detail of the prophecies we find in the Bible. But it's not just David who talked about it. Some 700 years before Jesus was born, you'll find the writings of Isaiah, specifically in the 53rd chapter. And he, too, goes into great detail about how the Messiah would die. 
Yet with this distinction, whereas David focuses more on the how of, of crucifixion, Isaiah delves more into and spends more time talking about the why behind his death and how he would suffer and die in the place of the guilty so that he could justify the many through his innocent blood being shed. But it's not just David and it's not just Isaiah that talk about how Jesus was going to die. Jesus himself predicted the means by which he would die when he said this in John 12, 32 and 33. Let's read this together out loud. He's saying, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. Now this he said, signifying what death he should die. As I mentioned a moment ago, when the Jews carried out capital punishment, they would cast the person down to stone them. Jesus here speaks of being lifted up. It's a reference to the cross, no doubt. That's why he had to be crucified. It's why they didn't stone him, because it was what was written in Scripture, and every word of God must come to pass. It cannot fail. So, Pilate, at this point, you know, Jesus, he just can't get rid of him, so he decides to go back inside to the palace, and he summons Jesus. Come over here. And he asks the following question, are you the king of the Jews? And by the way, when he asks this question, the grammatical emphasis is meant to fall on the word you. It's almost more of a statement than a question, like, you? You're the king of the Jews? You don't look like much of a king. Certainly, he didn't fit the mold of what Pilate had observed and seen in places like Rome or even Judea. And and no doubt Pilate had heard all about this Galilean carpenter, this, this, this traveling rabbinical teacher named Jesus. Everywhere he went, he would draw massive crowds and, and he would heal the sick and perform miracles. And, and Pilate gets his first face-to-face encounter with Jesus and he's unimpressed. He's like, really? You? I mean, I thought you'd be taller. <laughs> You know, I thought, I, thought, I thought you'd be something more, something different. And indeed, when we read about the Messiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah again tells us that there was nothing outward that would attract us to him or suggest that he was anything other than ordinary. It was what was on the inside, that the, the pure life of God flowed in Jesus. And so when Pilate says this, are you, you're the king of the Jews, Jesus comes back. He says, is that your own idea? Or did someone tell you that about me? And I like this because in this moment, Jesus flips the table by asking a question of his own. Pilate had seen men grovel before him and plead and beg for their life. Pilate is in this position of ultimate authority with a flick of the wrist. He can have Jesus crucified and yet Jesus shows no fear. And he he asks Pilate an engaging question like, Pilate, you've just said something there. In identifying me as a king, Is that a real question that you have? I want to probe that. I want to have a conversation about that. I want to engage you on that point. And and with this question, Jesus is really putting Pilate on trial. You see, he's telling him, whatever verdict you render on me is going to come back on your head. And by the way, what was true of Pilate is really true of all of us. Pilate had to determine, what am I going to do with Jesus? But no matter what, whatever you determine about Jesus will ultimately decide your eternal fate and destiny. So Pilate is asked this question by Jesus, and then he just brushes it aside. He doesn't want to engage Jesus. He says, am I a Jew? Verse 35. 
your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? And now Jesus comes back and answers Pilate's original question. He says, my kingdom, you asked if I'm a king, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So he affirms, yes, I am a king, but not in the way that you think. Pilate had a a certain kind of king in mind when he asked the question, are you a threat to me? Are you a threat to Rome? Are you a political king, an earthly king? And Jesus says, yes, I'm a king, but a different kind. You see, the kings of this earth, the kings Pilate was familiar with, they always seek to advance their agenda through physical or military dominance. Might makes right, or so the saying goes. And and nobody illustrated that saying better than Rome. They bludgeoned the ancient world into submission and then ruled for over a thousand years with an iron fist. Now, Jesus' kingdom functioned according to a different paradigm. You see, instead of focusing on crushing his enemies, Jesus taught his disciples to pray for them. Instead of focusing on clawing your way to the top, that's how it works in the kingdoms of this world, Jesus taught his disciples to, to, to be, take the low road and take the form of a servant. And instead of focusing on building an army of soldiers who would fight, he raised up disciples who would transform the world through their sacrificial love for one another. It was a totally different kingdom driven by different agendas and and ordered by different value systems and constructs. That's not to say that Jesus was powerless. Make no mistake about it. Earlier in the evening, when there in the garden, he said to the soldiers and Peter and everyone else who was within earshot, he said, don't you guys know, at this very moment, I could call for 12 legions of angels and they would be disposed and they would defend me. Let me just tease something out here for you. A legion, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 soldiers uh, at the bare minimum. So in saying, I have 12 legions of angels at my beck and call, Jesus was at the very, the base, the bare minimum saying, I could call for 72,000 angels and they would fight. Now, angels are these luminous, glorious, magnificent beings who dwell in the presence of God. We, we read of one instance in 2 Kings chapter 19 where a single angel in a lone night takes out an army, an Assyrian army that consisted of 185,000 soldiers. In one night, one angel did all of that. What do you think 72,000 angels could do? Jesus wasn't, he wasn't some victim here. He was a sacrificial lamb. You see, he could have called for them, but he didn't. Why? Because if he had done that, if he had saved himself, he couldn't have saved us. He knew it was only through his quote-unquote defeat that he could hand us the victory. And so Jesus is a different kind of king, and he came to inaugurate a different kind of kingdom. But in verse 37, Pilate latches on to what Jesus says, and his interest is piqued. He's kind of just like in a laughing way saying, oh, okay, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, he said, you, you say that I'm a king. And in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. And everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Verse 38, what is truth, retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews that were gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. 
So Pilate's interest is peaked, and Jesus says, yes, I'm a, I'm a king, and I came to testify to the truth. Are you listening to my voice? If you'll respond, then you can have the truth. And, and before Jesus can carry on, because I think Pilate cut him off mid-sentence when he says, what is truth? Now, how do you suppose Pilate voiced that? You know, one of the challenges with reading a text like this is you can't read voice inflection. You ever get like a text from your friends and you struggle to know like, how are they saying that? Like, wh- wh- what's your tone in this text? And, and if you're not careful, you can completely misunderstand what the person is trying to say. And, and so maybe you'll use all caps to try to be clear or you'll use a bunch of exclamation points or something like that. But, but we don't have that here. And so we wonder, was he, was he sincerely asking like, what is truth? Leaning in for the answer? Was he saying it like sarcastically, like truth? What's truth? Or perhaps cynically. And I'm inclined to believe it's the latter, right? Because no sooner had those words left his mouth than he turns around and walks out the door. You see, Pilate didn't have time for philosophical ponderings or existential questions like what is truth. He was far more interested in what is politically expedient. His days were filled with practical matters like forming public policy and keeping the peace. For him, what was true was far less important than what works. You see, Pilate was a pragmatist. And maybe you are too. I mean, we we pride ourselves on being practical. We want to know what works. And we too live in a world just like Pilate did, where what is true tends to carry less weight than what is expedient. Did you know that three out of four Americans say they don't believe in objective truth. They say it doesn't exist. The irony with that, of course, is, is that do they believe that's a true statement? <laughs> because the moment you latch on to the fact that there is no objective truth, you're making a truth claim and the whole argument unravels. But nevertheless, we just throw reason out the window with this one. And these days we're encouraged to live our truth. You ever heard that? Hey, you just, you speak your truth. And I'm so glad that you found what works for you and it's true for you. And if it doesn't hurt anybody, then that's really all that matters. The prevailing ideology of the day is if something works and is expedient, then that's good enough. You know, it was a handful of years ago, just in 2016, that Oxford Dictionary chose as its international word for the year. This is something they do every year. Did you know there was a word of the year? Well, in 2016, the word of the year, which it taps into pop culture and and lays hold of what's kind of making its rounds, and and the word of the year in 2016 was post-truth. And here's how they defined that term. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Let me just distill that and put it in plain English for you. The facts don't really matter, only your feelings do. And I think on the surface level, we can, we can understand why that's attractive, right? Because if the truth is relative, which is what that is saying, then it means we all get to become our own arbiters of what is and isn't true. We become the highest court in the land, and we get to to decide what goes and what doesn't. It means anything goes, really, if you get to decide what's true. 
So if you decide, like, it doesn't matter what gender you were given at birth, you can just choose to be or identify as whatever you want. It's, that's your truth. You live it out. And, and if, if you're, the child inside of your womb doesn't fit into your future plans, we can just reclassify that child as a choice, and you can terminate your pregnancy. And, and so all morals and all right and wrong just kind of cease to have meaning in a world filled with moral relativists. And so it's attractive to a lot of people. But let me just tell you what the problem is with living in a world there is no, where there is no objective truth. And the problem is society itself just begins to unravel, unravel, right? If there is no objective standard for truth and, and our story and where we've come from and where we're going, if there is no standard for what is right and what is wrong, then that means there's really no difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. He's just living his version of truth and she's living hers. And of course, none of us would agree with that. And so the whole thing just kind of comes unglued. See, just because you want something to be true doesn't make it real. You might want to, to run through this screen and just believe, you know, I believe sincerely that I can just run through this wall behind me, this video wall. Well, if you get up ahead of steam, you're going to run into the facts and the facts state that you can't pass through solid objects. A friend offered the following definition for truth for, to me the other day. He said, truth is that which corresponds with reality. I like that. I like that. You know, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not all entitled to our own facts. We need something that's true. And that's why we gather here. This book is true. Somebody say amen. It's true all the time for all people in all places, regardless of situation or circumstances. It doesn't change with the prevailing winds. It's as valid for the young as it is for the old, for today as it was for yesterday. You know, it's a shame that Pilate didn't stick around for the answer when he asked the question, what is truth? Because he was staring truth in the face, wasn't he? You ever been looking for your sunglasses and you can't find them? And sure enough, there they are right on top of your head the whole time. That's Pilate with this question. He says, what is truth? Throws up his hands and walks out the door. Meanwhile, Jesus is truth personified. It was earlier on this evening where Jesus declared to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, article, uh, definite article, not a truth, not one of many truths. I am the truth and I am the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus throughout his life testified of the truth. He told us the truth about heaven and hell, death and life, God and the, the devil and, and all of the rest. He gives us the truth. John wrote that he came full of grace and truth. Jesus himself said, you will know the truth and it will set you free. This is why the truth is powerful, friends. It has the, the potential to unlock freedom, to set you free from bondage and chains and addiction. And Jesus said, thy word is truth. So if you want to know what truth is, you open this book, but it's not just the words contained in the book. The words point us to a person, and his name is Jesus. Can somebody say amen? amen. Praise the Lord. So Pilate, the pragmatist, asked this question that has hung in the air for the last 2,000 years, but he also had another problem. Pilate, the politician, the pragmatist, was also Pilate, the people pleaser. When he walks out, he says, I find no basis for a charge against Jesus. This is the gavel falling, and Pilate, as the judge in this case, is rendering his verdict on the case. 
This is where things should have ended. He, he had tried Jesus, included that he's innocent. But Pilate had a problem. You see, he was a politician. And so he had to please his constituency. And there were a lot of voices in his ear clamoring for his attention. On the one hand, he had the voice of Rome saying, I'll be careful, Pilate. Don't let unrest break out. And surely if he lets Jesus go, there's going to be a mob and word could get to Rome and he'd get in trouble again. He also had the voice of the people, the mob that was chanting for Jesus' blood ringing in his ear. He had the voice of truth, Jesus' own voice. Who He had just listened to the voice of Jesus. He had the voice of his own conscience. He knew that Jesus was an innocent man. And on no less than three occasions, he points out that fact that Jesus had done nothing wrong. And and on top of all of that, he had the voice of his wife. We we don't know her name, but in the other gospel records, we're, we're told about Pilate's wife. We'll call her Mrs. Pilate. And she had this dream in which she was deeply troubled and she woke up and she went to her husband. She said, have nothing to do with this just man. So even Pilate's wife understands that Jesus is innocent and he has to decide, what am I going to do with all of these voices? That's how he came up with the following solution. In verse 39, he says, this is your custom. Ah, this is great. That each year I release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. So what do you guys think? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So Pilate wants nothing to do with Jesus. He doesn't care about Jesus. He's neutral on Jesus, just like a lot of people today. And he keeps trying to extricate himself from this political hot potato that he just can't, he can't fling it. He can't, he tries to send him to Herod. He tries to make it the Jews problem. He he tries to get the people to to decide for him. And and he thinks that finally, if I just leave the the decision in the hands of the people, they're going to call for Jesus and I'll be out of hot water. But instead they ask for Barabbas. You see, this is the problem with allowing your opinions to be shaped by the crowd. Every time you fear the crowd, it inevitably leads to two things. Number one, you won't do the things that you know you ought to do, right? This is called the sin of omission. It's, it's not doing the thing you know you should do, and that's Pilate not freeing Jesus. But not only does fearing the crowd lead to not doing what you know you should do, it also inevitably results in you doing the very thing you know you shouldn't do. Because when you fear people and you fear the applause of men and live for their applause, it's only a matter of time before you fall into that trap. And that's what happened with Pilate. His fear of people kept him from doing what he knew he should do. And then he ended up condemning Jesus because he was afraid of the mob. He allowed the voice of the crowd to drown out the voice of his own conscience. Be careful, friends, with the people you surround yourself with and which voices you listen to. Listen uh, to this. Actually, let's read it together out loud. It's Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. When you fear men, you won't fear God. However, if you can learn to fear God, and and that's not like fear is in like ah, trembling and fear. There's a little bit of that. But more so, it's just living in, in reverential awe. 
and wonder of God in his person and his presence. And if you fear God in that way, you want to honor him. You won't fear what any man can do to you. You see, Pilate feared the people and therefore didn't fear God. And it resulted in this big mess. So we see Pilate, the politician, Pilate, the pragmatist, Pilate, the people pleaser. But you know what Pilate really was at the end of the day? He was just a pawn. He was a pawn. He saw himself as a pragmatist, a a shrewd and cunning politician, but he was really just carrying out God's ultimate plan as we saw the scriptures foretold long in advance that this is what would happen, that Jesus would go to the cross and he had to go to the cross because it's the only way by which men could be saved. Jesus came to die in our place and nobody illustrates that better than this guy who finds its way into our story here at the end of chapter 18 this guy named Barabbas. Barabbas is an interesting character. You know, he he shows up briefly in all four Gospels, and we don't know much about him other than the fact that he was a rebel, that he was a murderer, and that he was on death row. And so he's just biding his time, waiting until his number is called. And on this day, as he sat there waiting in his cell, he hears the chants, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he thinks, surely this is it. And then he hears his own name, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. He hears the guard walking down the long hall and unlocking the door to his cell. And he stands him up on his feet and with his eyes cast down, Barabbas is, is, is just kind of, you know, waiting for his fate. But in that moment, the unthinkable happens and the Roman guard takes the key and unlocks the chains that bind him. And he says, you're free to go. In bewilderment, he looks up, he says, what, what do you, why, what, what happened? And the guard tells him, Jesus of Nazareth has taken your cross. You're free to go. Jesus took Barabbas' place. He's the only man in the, the, the truest sense of the word that, that could honestly say, Jesus took my cross, the cross that was shaped for me. He hung on it. But in that sense, Barabbas becomes a picture of all of us, doesn't he? The name Barabbas means son of a father, son of a father. That's who we are. We're sons and daughters of a heavenly father created to live in perfect fellowship and harmony with him. But then we rebelled against the father. And because of our sin, the sentence of death hung over the head of humanity. The Bible declares the wages of sin is death. But then God sent his own son, Jesus, the true son of the father. And he takes the curse. He bears the cross. He goes and he dies in our place so that we can be set free. We are all Barabbas. And that's what the gospel is. The righteous for the unrighteous. The guilty for the innocent. The just for the unjust. His life for ours. You see, Barabbas expected to die. He deserved to die, but Jesus took his place. And what Jesus did for Barabbas, he's done for every one of us. Will you pray with me? Thank you, Lord, for your grace that you bestow on all who call upon your name. You know, as we think about Pilate and we think about Barabbas, they both had these interactions with Jesus. For his part, Pilate wanted to maintain a position of neutrality, but in the end, he found that he couldn't wash his hands of the blood of Jesus, and he's gone down in history as the man responsible for crucifying God's own son. But it wasn't just him who was guilty. 
When he said, what shall I do with Jesus? He tried to put the decision on others. He took a public, a popular opinion poll and the people shouted, crucify him. And the religious leaders said, his blood be on us. And so they bear culpability and responsibility too for the blood of Jesus. But it wasn't just Pilate and it wasn't just the religious leaders or the religious community. You have to look in the mirror because the, the truest theological conclusion is that if the question is who is responsible for the death of Jesus the answer is I am it was my sins that nailed him to the cross he bled and he died for me and what's true for me is true for every person in this room but thank God there is a there is a cross there is a cross on a hill Located just outside the, the city walls of Jerusalem at a place called the Skull. It was a place where Rome con condemned and killed many political prisoners. But no prisoner was ever like this one. When he cried out, it is finished. The veil in the temple was rent. And the tombs were opened. And the rocks split and the, the sky went dark because Jesus in that moment had conquered the grave. He defeated death. He secured our salvation. But what comes freely to us cost him everything. And so we cannot, we must not be neutral when it comes to Jesus. We must respond in faith. Salvation is something that is freely offered. And Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. But he refuses to kick the door down. We must open the door and invite him in. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're ready to surrender your heart, your life to Jesus. And if so, I'd like to lead you in a prayer before we partake of communion together. And you can just offer this prayer up in your heart. You can say, Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me, for leaving heaven and coming to the earth on a rescue mission. You lived the life I could never live. You died the death I deserve and rose from the dead so that I could spend eternity with you. I received the gift of salvation by grace through faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.